Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with the national lead. This afternoon, Felonis Floyd gave emotional testimony about his big brother, George Floyd, in the prosecution of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. This all comes as the nation is grappling with multiple new deadly interactions with police just in the last day or so. The first, about 10 miles from where this trial is being held in a suburb of Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center, where another black man was killed by police. This afternoon, police in that town released the body cam video showing 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop yesterday, seeming to resist arrest and try to escape in his car, during which he was shot and ultimately killed. The chief of police said today that he believes the police officer accidentally discharged her gun, meaning instead to fire her taser. Last night, hundreds of people protested Wright's death in Minneapolis, some threw projectiles at police, one of whom was injured. The Minnesota National Guard has been deployed. Additionally, this afternoon, President Biden is calling for calm, saying there's no justification for violence. Also, in Georgia overnight, three police officers were shot when a driver and a passenger began shooting them during a car chase. The officers survived, thankfully, but one of the suspects in the car is dead. Our correspondents are covering all these stories. Let's start with CNN's Adrian Broaddus in Minnesota, where 20-year-old Dante Wright was shot and killed. And today, uh, the chief of police in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, released this body cam footage, said he believes this was an accidental discharge, that the officer meant to fire her her taser instead. Before we play this video, we have to warn you, it is disturbing to watch. Adrian, uh, we, we hear the officer say taser, 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 and then she fires her gun, not her taser, and then curses and says, I shot him. What did the police chief have to say about this video, and, and why did he release it? Well, I'll start with the why. The chief said he released it because he wanted to be transparent. This is unprecedented, especially here in the state of Minnesota, for a department to release body cam video so quickly. But he felt he owed it to the public. He felt he owed it to the community, especially members of the community that you see outside of the police department right now. These are some of the same people who showed up here last night protesting the officer's actions. And in full transparency, he is calling this an accident. He said she thought she was reaching for her taser because in that video you hear her saying taser, 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 which is what officers are supposed to do before they deploy their taser. But clearly she mistaked her taser for her gun, shooting uh, Dante at least one time. 
Meanwhile, when that video was played in the news conference today, there were audible gas. A man to my right who was a friend of another Minnesota resident who died at the hands of police began crying. He wept. And there were a lot of questions from reporters like myself as well as members from the community who were inside because the chief told us the initial stop was because Dante Wright was driving a vehicle with expired tags. Jake? Expired tags and now he's dead. Uh, thank you, Adrian. Now to Georgia, where three police officers were shot during a car chase. CNN's Ryan Young is in Villarica, uh, Rica, Georgia. Ryan, how did this happen? How are, these, how are the officers doing? Jake, that's the big question this evening. You can still see an active crime scene behind me. But the, really the talk about this is this was a, a stop on the highway, an attempted stop. The car was traveling more than 100 miles per hour, according to Georgia State Patrol troopers, who tried to stop that car. They tried to do a pit maneuver. That's when the trooper takes the front of his car and knocks into the back of another car to send it out of control. After that happened and the driver was able to gain control of the car, apparently the passenger leaned out of the window and started shooting a rifle at the officers as they were behind it. Now you look at the scene here, what we're told is those suspects bailed out somewhere near here. Shots were fired and one suspect was killed. Another was captured after a sort of a negotiation. What we're told, three officers went to the hospital, one has been released, two remain in the hospital. Now, Jake, just in the last 10 minutes or so, we have had names released. We're told the deceased has been identified as Pierre Alexander Shelton. He's 28 of uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Also, the person who was arrested was Aaron Shelton. He's 22 years old of Birmingham, Alabama. He's been charged with five counts of aggravated assault. This remains an active crime scene, obviously, when you have a police-involved shooting. The GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, has been combing through the fields here for a few hours to try to figure out all the information and evidence they can gather. But if you think about this, this was supposed to be a traffic stop that turned into someone leaning out of the window with a rifle, firing toward officers. Three of them hit. We're told one has been released. We'll hopefully get the conditions of the two other officers in the near future. Jake? All right, Ryan, thank you so much. In Virginia... Two police officers accused in a lawsuit of using excessive force during a December traffic stop. The officers pulled over an active duty Army officer, 2nd Lieutenant Karen Nazario, who's black and Latino. Body cam video shows officers pointed guns at Nazario, uh, pepper sprayed him, and pushed him to the ground after pulling him over for what they thought was a missing license plate. The lawsuit says that the officer, the uh, Army officer, w was driving a new car with temporary plates actually taped to the inside of the back window. So he wasn't missing his plates, according to the lawsuit. Now, the, uh, Army, uh, the Army officer, Nazario, slowed down. He put his blinkers on, but he did not pull over for another minute and 40 seconds. He, he said he was trying to find a well-lit area. Here is just part of this interaction. And again, we have to warn you, this video is, is disturbing and it may be difficult to watch. I'm serving this country and this is how I'm treated. Yo, what? Guess what? I'm a veteran too. I'm going to obey. That's Get not... out of the car. What's going on? Get out of the car now. What's going on? What's going on? You're fixing to ride the lightning, son. I'm sorry, what? Get out of the car now. What's going on? Get out on? of the car now. Get out of the car. Sir, just get out of the car. I... Work with us and we'll talk to you. Get out the car. You received our order. Obey it. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly afraid to get out. Can I? Yeah, you, you should be. Going? Get out. 
What's going on? What Get did I do? Get out now! I have not committed any crimes. You're being stopped for a traffic violation. You're not cooperating at this point right now. You're under arrest for a traffic. You're being detained, okay? You're being detained for, for a traffic justice. violation. I do not have to get out the vehicle. You haven't even told really? me why I'm being stopped. Really? Get your get hands. Out, get out of the car now. Get out of the car. Get your hands off me, get please. Get your hands off me. You know what? Get your hands off me. Get your hands off me. I didn't do anything. Don't do that. Sir, get out of the car Don't now. Don't do that. Hey, Don't do that. Don't do. Look, I'm trying to talk to you. Okay. I'm trying to I'm talk. talk to get you. out. Just relax. get out of my car. Can you please relax? Can you please relax? Get out of the car right I'm, now. Now. This is not how you treat a vet. Uh, I'm actively serving this country, and this is how you're going to treat me? I didn't do anything. Whoa, hold on. Right What's now. going on? Hold on. Watch, Watch it. Get out of the car. Get out of the car now. That's, that's up. That's Get out of the car now. Sir, just get out the car. I'm trying to breathe. Police reports say that Lieutenant Nazario was pepper sprayed because he failed to comply with the officer's orders and struck one of the officers when he tried to unlock the door. That's their version. Nazario's lawsuit says those statements are false. The video footage obviously contradicts the police officers. Meanwhile, CNN has learned that one of the officers, uh, Joe Gutierrez, was fired after an internal investigation. CNN has been unable to reach the officer's or their representatives. Uh, let's discuss all of this. And frankly, it's tough to watch a lot of this. Um, Van, let's start with your reaction to this this video out of Virginia. Well, I mean, overall, uh, you know, just it's um, too much violence, uh, too much violence against uh, innocent people. Uh, you know, when you, you think about veterans and you think about our military, uh, we're supposed to respect them. We're supposed to honor them. Uh, but we've had a tradition going back to World War II where black men came home wearing their uniforms, wearing their medals, very proud of their service, and were lynched at railroad stations uh, because they were they were being too uppity. Uh, it just all of this stuff just brings up so much pain, so much historical trauma. People say, well, why didn't you just get out of the car? I'm going to tell you right now, you get pulled over by a police officers screaming at you and pointing guns at you, all the stuff that's going on. You want to get some assurances and try, especially when you literally haven't done anything wrong. And so I just think you're seeing this sort of tale of two Americas. I'm sure a lot of people look at that and they say, hey, look, if you just gotten out, you wouldn't have gotten in any trouble. But you have a lot of people like me. I understand 100 percent why he was afraid, even as a, even as an active serving military person in uniform, was literally afraid to get out of that car without more assurance. And what happened to him, you know, was despicable. Neil, you're a former police officer. What's your take on the Virginia incident? We should note that the three officers shot in Georgia underlines what what police might face at, at any given moment uh, doing their job. How do you how do you balance that? The, the risk of violence at a, at a road stop in Georgia and then what we see here in this video from Virginia. Yeah, I mean, the job has inherent risk, but. Let me talk about the two initial differences between these two traffic stops. One, in Georgia, we had a vehicle in, in excess of 100 miles per hour, extremely dangerous. And then failing to stop, obviously trying to flee the police officers. Now, the one in Virginia, so many things went wrong from the very beginning, especially when we advise many motorists, especially if they're uh, a little apprehensive of stopping on a dark road in the middle of the night, 
to put on their flashers, to stay within the speed limit, to drive to a well-lit area um, before pulling over. And this is what we tell them to do. Why didn't these police officers respond to that? So from the beginning, it went wrong. Now you're talking about a simple traffic violation of one you know, of a tag violation, a felony stop. I was talking with some of our fellow, my fellow officers, both current and retired earlier today. And we can, we're like, OK, what these officers did and how they responded with this felony stop. We're talking about character. We're talking about uh, uh, culture and we're talking about courage. And when I say courage, the lack of courage. And we talked about the many times that we had similar traffic stops and you just walk up to the car and you ask for a license and registration. Don't get me wrong. You're cautious. And with two officers on the scene, one could have gone up to the driver's side. One could have gone up to the passenger side like we normally do. And this could have been a very easy, tra simple traffic stop. The one who was trying to de-escalate was Lieutenant Nazario. And that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. It's, and Van, one of the things that's so unsettling about all of this is he, he and they thought that he didn't have a license plate he did he had he had uh, temporary tags taped to his window he just bought the car uh there was the the traffic stop for uh in in minnesota last night uh the george floyd he he passed a 20 dollar a counterfeit 20 dollar bill uh eric garner he was selling loose cigarettes i mean these are petty anti-offenses petty. And they end with violence. Even the guy trying to escape, and I under, like you shouldn't resist arrest, you shouldn't try to flee the scene of the crime. But does that really give officers a license to kill because somebody's trying to escape? I mean, there needs to be some sense of of, of balance here. Well, listen. Uh Part of it is that why are we using people with guns and badges and tasers and batons and, and pepper spray and all this stuff on stuff that doesn't matter? Um, you know, you now have some cities that they, they finally just said, listen, don't pull people over for nonsense. I mean, listen, if, you know, if somebody is driving, you know, with uh, expired tags, which is one of these incidents, phone it in, send them a ticket in the mail. Why are we having highly armed people? interacting with people over petty nonsense. And as I've said a thousand times, other communities, you know, you got young people in the suburbs, Ivy League campuses, country clubs, yacht clubs, acting like complete hooligans, doing whatever they want to. The cops are never called, or if they are called, they talk to them completely differently. And we're not stupid. We see this. We see, you know, uh, people using drugs in, in country clubs, yacht clubs. People have these frat boys doing crazy stuff. And the cops go up to them and talk to them like they're human beings and sometimes walk them home and talk to their parents. We see this. We're not stupid. We know what's going on. And, and yet when it's one of us, it's always force. It's always escalation. It's always violence. Van and Neil, thank you so much for your insights today. appreciate it. One of George Floyd's brothers uh, takes a stand to tell the jury who his late brother was. But the prosecution is raising eyebrows with their next witness. Then, the state where COVID hospitalizations are four times higher today than they were two weeks ago. We have some breaking news in our national lead. Multiple people are reported having been shot at a Knoxville, Tennessee high school, including at least one police officer. Knoxville police say multiple agencies are responding to the scene where it is still active. 
We're obviously going to keep following this. We'll bring you updates as soon as we learn more. Also in the National League today, emotional testimony today from George Floyd's younger brother, Philonis Floyd, as prosecutors wrap up their murder case against Derek Chauvin. So far, more than 35 witnesses have been called. The defense is expected to begin calling their witnesses as soon as this week. CNN's Sarah Seidner reports. He was a big mama's boy. George Floyd's brother, Philonis Floyd, took the stand to tell the jurors who his brother was before his death sparked worldwide protests. He just was like a, a person that everybody loved around the community. He, he just knew how to make people feel better. Floyd's family's testimony is one of the last the jurors will hear in the prosecution's case. The state will call Dr. Jonathan Rich. The prosecution started the day calling another medical expert, Dr. Jonathan Rich, an expert in cardiology determined Floyd died because of the officer's actions. Do you have an opinion uh, as to whether George Floyd would have lived if not for Mr. Chauvin's subdual and restraint of him for nine minutes and 29 seconds on the ground? Yes, I believe he would have lived. Again, Chauvin's attorney tried to get the doctor to admit there were other possibilities for Floyd's death, such as drugs or heart disease. And one more thing, Floyd's own actions. If um, Mr. Floyd had simply gotten in the backseat of the squad car, do you think that he would have survived? Had he not been restrained in the way in which he was, I think he would have survived that day. The prosecution is expected to rest soon. Then it will be the defense's turn to try and unravel the prosecution's case with their own witnesses. Now, uh, we should tell you that there has been an announcement by Chief Arredondo here in Minneapolis uh, that it is going to go the city into phase three of Operation Safety Net, which basically means the city is going to lock down. And that is because of the other shooting that you heard uh, from our reporter, uh, Adrian Brodus there, of Duante Wright. Um, but that is going to happen starting tonight. They were going to put it into phase three with the most visible amount of law enforcement in the streets as the jury was supposed to be uh, deliberating in the particular Derek Chauvin case. But now they have fast forwarded and started that now because of what happened uh, in a adjoining city. I should also mention that we also heard from another use of force expert who testified yet again for the prosecution that indeed it was not necessary to use the kind of force that was used on George Floyd by Derek Chauvin and the other officers. Sarah Seidner in Minneapolis for us. Thank you so much. And CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers joins us now. Jennifer, today we heard from George Floyd's younger brother. Um, his testimony came before the use of force experts, Seth uh, uh, Stoughton. Uh, some people, uh, legal observers, seem to suggest that that seemed kind of backwards because the prosecution should have wanted to end on this emotional, personal note of the younger brother missing his older brother. Is, is that a risk, a significant risk, do you think? I don't think so, Jake, because it was such powerful emotional testimony. It's the sort of thing the jury is going to perk up and listen to no matter where it comes. And I do think that the expert testimony that came last, which effectively said that all of these threats that the defense counsel has been so intent on trying to say were present from George Floyd, from the crowd, did not make Chauvin's actions reasonable. So that was kind of a missing piece that they hadn't really gotten out yet. And I think maybe the jurors were waiting for that, and now they have it. And maybe that's why the prosecution decided to end with that testimony today to wrap that up for the jurors. So there have been more than 35 witnesses for the prosecution. 
Give us some context. Is that a lot? Is that a lot of testimony for the jury to, to have to digest? It's not really here. I mean, this is a murder trial, so you expect a lot of witnesses. We're only starting week three. This hasn't been particularly lengthy. And I don't think it's particularly overly complicated for jurors because it's not a factually complicated case. We're all talking about about 30 minutes of time involving one man and a handful of police officers, really. So it's not a complicated case. They will have, of course, the opportunity to ask for evidence and testimony to be read back for them if they need it when they're deliberating. But I don't think 35 witnesses is a lot for this kind of case. And I think that they've certainly gotten the the gist so far. So the defense is going to begin to present their case likely this week. All the defense has to do is provide reasonable doubt and convict, uh, I'm sorry, convince one juror. Uh, We expect that they're going to go after Floyd's character, his drug use. What do you make of their strategy so far? Well, you know, so far it's been what it always is. The defense lawyer has tried to pick away at the prosecution's witnesses by kind of tossing out a bunch of different theories and, you know, not understanding, of course, what's going to resonate with any given juror. Now it's going to be their turn. It's their opportunity to put on their affirmative case. And so I expect to see maybe some character witnesses for Chauvin. I expect to see some contradictory expert testimony. And the question will be whether he testifies. That's the key thing here. Jennifer Rogers, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the good news and the bad news about the pandemic as the U.S. races to out-vaccinate the virus. Stay with us. Our health lead now. By the end of this week, half of all U.S. adults are expected to have had at least one vaccine dose. That's good news. Here's the bad news. COVID cases are spiking across the country. They're up 10% from last week. And Michigan remains a real hotspot with the UK variant of the virus rapidly spreading there. Hospitalizations there are up fourfold from just two weeks ago. And health experts are warning the surge in Michigan could be a sign of what's to come nationwide. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, looks at how vaccine distribution is stacking up against the looming threat of another surge. This is what the vaccine rollout looked like at the end of last year. Less than 3 million doses administered total. Whenever I make up my mind, I want to get that thing get done. Those are my parents. And my mom's not lying. This is how they managed to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Waiting in line overnight for hours just to get a number and then hope for a shot. Cut to today and the United States has finally hit its stride. Vaccinating on average... More than 3 million people every day. That's 35 people a second. When you first heard that the the goal was to basically roll out hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine, what went through your head? I guess I said a quick prayer. Claire Hannon is the executive director of the Association of Immunization Managers, which works to help improve immunization coverage in the United States. On every level, this is unprecedented. The dry ice, the ultra-cold storage... The mixing with the diluent, the three different vaccine regimens with different days apart. There's just so much going on. Vaccine manufacturers have worked to address these concerns, from figuring out the right needles to extract every dose, to working toward less cold storage temperatures. And of course, helping the biggest piece of the puzzle finally fall into place. What we need is more vaccine. With millions of doses now steadily coming off the line, It's up to states to make sure those shots are getting into arms. 
But there's not a one-size-fits-all solution here. For example, look at New York versus North Dakota. According to a CNN analysis, they will be the first states to vaccinate all willing adults, but for very different reasons. In New York, they have one of the fastest rollouts in the country, vaccinating almost 1% of the state's population per day. North Dakota is vaccinating slower, but has a higher rate of vaccine hesitancy. That's why Hannon says there is no silver bullet. She does say that sites like these, though, have made one of the biggest impacts. The response to set up mass vaccination sites, to increase throughput, to, to have these large-scale sites where we can really manage inventory, that was a tremendous response, a tremendous shift. And soon there's going to be a bigger shift as the Biden administration seeks to open up eligibility across the entire country later this month, something Hannon thinks we need to be ready for. We always have to try to stay one step ahead of any kind of lull in demand. And so, you know, we've got really good momentum going, and it's time. It's time for people who are 16 and up. It's their turn. Now, one thing Hannah did say as well, Jake, was that it made sense to prioritize those people who are most vulnerable, elderly, at the beginning of the vaccine rollout because they were the people most likely to get sick. But I want to show you what's happening in places like Michigan now. Take a look at this graphic. One week on the left there is ending in uh, December 23rd of last year. The one on the right is ending at the end of March of this year. That green area, Jake, that sort of represents people between the ages of 40 and 69. You can see that they make up an increasingly large percentage of those being hospitalized as people who are older, that percentage uh, continues to shrink. What does this mean? We need to vaccinate and people who are younger thinking maybe, you know, this wasn't something that was necessary for them, should take a look at this graphic because it tells an important story of where we need to go, Jake. Get those vaccines to the people who need it most. Jake? Jake Gupta, thank you so much. One Republican senator today criticized President Biden's tweets. Yes, you heard me correctly. A Republican senator criticizing President Biden's tweets. Stay with us. In our politics lead today with Congress back from recess, President Biden made his first direct pitch to try to sell his $2 trillion infrastructure plan. He hosted a group of Democratic and Republican lawmakers at the White House this afternoon while his administration continues to redefine language. Washington's meeting of bipartisanship today referring to support in the polls among Republicans, not Republicans on Capitol Hill, senior Biden advisor Anita Dunn reportedly told the Washington Post the definition, quote, doesn't say the Republicans have to be in Congress, unquote. I want to bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, any signs of willingness to negotiate uh, between the two sides, particularly from the re Republicans in the room today? Well, we didn't hear from the Republicans. They, they did not come out to the microphones afterwards, like typically you've seen some of these lawmakers do. But President Biden himself said while he was in the room that he is open to negotiating not just how to pay for this package, which has kind of been a point of contention since he proposed it, but also the extent of what's in here. So whether or not that actually comes out in the wash at the end of the day when we see what the text of this is going to look like, that still remains to be seen. But he did have four Republicans there, just as those four Democrats were also there they're involved in the drafting of what this is going to look like, Jake. And he said that some parts of it are not negotiable to him, water, broadband, things of that nature that are in here. But he did say that he does believe this will all work out perfectly in the end, though, of course, 
perfectly. And the definition of that is going to depend on who's looking at this, because you've heard Republicans like Liz Cheney say that this bill, this proposal from President Biden on infrastructure would have to be, quote, fundamentally redone in order to actually get Republicans on board. So that remains to be seen what it's actually going to look like. And Caitlin, there, there are plenty of valid things to criticize uh, President Biden over, of course. Um, but today we saw something rather odd from Republican Senator John Cornyn. He, he tweeted a link to a, a story uh, that noted that President Biden's messaging has been rather disciplined. He sticks to scripted events. He sends out very conventional tweets. He doesn't do as many interviews with uh, mainstream media outlets as, as Trump used to do. Cornyn said this, quote, invites the question, is he really in charge? I don't know that it invites that question. That's quite a leap. Uh, How is the White House responding? I think that's a popular stereotype that you often see the president's detractors want to play up. The White House responded in particular to one part that Cornyn had tweeted. And this is actually from the Politico story. This wasn't his own commentary, but he was tweeting where it said or quoting where it said that his President Biden's tweets are unimaginably conventional, I believe is the phrase that they used. And they asked Jen Psaki about this earlier today during the press briefing. And she said, yes, that she can confirm he does not spend his days tweeting conspiracy theories. Of course, that's a reference to what we often saw on former President Trump's Twitter feed, Jake. Well, maybe Biden should go on Judge Janine and lie about COVID or, or uh, something along those lines. Maybe that would reassure John Cornyn. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Appreciate it. New accusations today that a high-profile nuclear site has been the target of terrorism. The allegations could have a global impact. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead and an apparent act of sabotage. The Iranian government is protesting a blackout at one of its key nuclear sites, the Natanz facility, where the country enriches uranium that could be used to make a nuclear bomb. Iran is blaming, not surprisingly, Israel, describing the blackout as an act of terrorism and vowing revenge against Israel. Joining us now to discuss retired Admiral William McRaven, the former head of U.S. Special Operations Command and author of the new book, The Hero Code. Lessons learned from lives well lived. Admiral, I'll get to the book in a second, but I do have to ask you, Iran is vowing revenge. What do you expect that might look like? Well, first, Jack, good good to be with you. You know, certainly all indications are uh, are certainly pointing towards Israel. And And I would offer that that's a little disturbing in light of the fact that we are trying to renegotiate the JCPOA. It's just not helpful, and frankly, I'm not exactly sure what it accomplishes. It's a, it's a little bit of a shot across the bow, but Natanz will only be down for maybe a week or so. So now when the uh, Iranians start to look at retribution, uh, you know, there's always a lot of talk, but uh, a lot of times not a lot of follow-through. So certainly, uh, you know, you never know what might happen to uh, Israeli leadership, uh, and I think they've got to be on guard. But again, a little, uh, a little troubling to see this action occurring right now. But, Admiral, do you think Israel would carry out such an act of sabotage uh, without informing the U.S. government, either before or after? Well, this is the problem. This does not look good. It it implies that we were either complicit or we were ignorant, and neither one of those is a good look for us. And, and again, the, uh, the disturbing part of this is, as we are trying to renegotiate the JCPOA, this seems to undermine our efforts. So, uh, you know, I, the truth may never come out, 
Uh, but on the surface of it, it just it doesn't look good for either side, frankly. The, the timing, as you know, it is crucial because this U.S. delegation is overseas right now involved in these talks to possibly revive the Iran nuclear deal. You think this complicates those talks? Uh, definitely. I mean, there's no proof that Israel did it. We all suspect it, perhaps, but there's no proof of it. Yeah, I, I think your word is correct. It complicates the talks. The fact of the matter is, I think the Iranians want to come back to the table. We certainly want them to come back to the table. This just complicates matters, unless all of a sudden uh, they have a smoking gun, which clearly they don't have at this point. Let's talk about your new book, The Hero Code. You tell the stories of some of the most outstanding heroes you've met in your life, ranging from service members to astronauts to celebrities who spend their time in relief efforts. What was your biggest takeaway uh, after writing this book? Yeah, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, we all need heroes. I mean, every society needs heroes. And, and heroes, frankly, they inspire the, the younger generation to be better than the current generation. And that's kind of what moves societies forward. And the fact of the matter is, you don't have to be a hero that, uh, that is on the marquee. What you see are heroes every single day that have these noble qualities. I mean, that is the definition of a hero. People that we admire for these noble qualities courage and humility and perseverance, a sense of sacrifice. So I was fortunate in my 40 years, uh, both in the military and at the University of Texas, to meet some remarkable heroes. And I hope these, uh, this younger generation, the millennials and the Gen Z, of which I am their biggest fan, I uh, hope they'll enjoy this book, as well as some of the older crowd. You say being a hero is not limited to, to the strong, the courageous, the famous. You say it's something all of us can do. Explain what you mean by that. Well, yeah, I think we all learn these, these noble traits from our parents, guardians, coaches, teachers. You can learn to be courageous. You can learn to be humble. You can learn to have a sense of duty. And so we can all acquire some of these noble traits if we'll take the time to learn and to hopefully learn from some of these great examples that are in the books, but also in the great examples of the young men and women and the older generation that are out there today doing these noble deeds. All right, Admiral William McRaven, great to see you as always. Thanks for joining us. Congrats on the new book again. It's called The Hero Code, Lessons Learned from Lives Well Lived. Thanks again, sir. Healthcare workers Thanks, in Jim. Canada are now waiting up to four months for their second dose of the COVID vaccine. What is fueling the vaccine shortage in our neighbor to the north? What's going on there? Stay with us. Some bad news for our, for our neighbors north and our world lead. Canada is now outpacing the United States in terms of coronavirus cases per capita. This is a concerning uptick, considering that the Canadian vaccine rollout is not going well at all. By comparison, in the U.S., more than one in three Americans have gotten at least their first shot. In Canada, fewer than one in five received their first shot. CNN's Paula Newton now finds out what's causing Canada's vaccine drought. That's hard to stomach. It's really hard to stomach. Doctors frustrated, exhausted, as a growing third wave of COVID cases spreads across Canada even more serious than the first two. And vaccines are arriving far too late to stem the surge. One horrifying look inside Canadian ICUs filled to capacity and beyond. And it's clear, doctors say, Canada's vaccine shortage is now their problem. We went through a period where we were rapidly trying to immunize our healthcare workers, both first and second doses, to 
all of a sudden we're not getting the supply that we thought we would. We have nothing. And it went down to, I remember weeks where there was no vaccine. Vaccines change the game of this pandemic. And Canada is still on the losing end for a country that had categorically claimed to have secured more doses per capita than any other in the world, doses have not arrived in time, and doctors say the early vaccine drought will cost lives. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Canada no longer has any domestic production capacity for vaccines, and unlike the U.S. and the U.K., was not able to ramp up domestic manufacturing. So Canadians are at the mercy of imports, not even from their American neighbour, but from Europe. We continue our discussions uh, with the American administration on uh, getting more doses into Canada. The Biden administration sent 1.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to Canada in recent weeks, but there is no announced plan so far to send more. And from Europe, Canada has received more than 8 million total doses. All of it, not enough for a country of nearly 38 million people, forcing most Canadians, including frontline workers, to get only one dose, with the second shot postponed as long as four months. That's prompted the head of the world-renowned University of Ottawa Heart Institute to plead with the Ontario government to quickly get a second dose to medical staff. It's not a small problem, uh, Paula. It's not a small problem. People are exhausted. We see staff uh, not coming to work because they may have COVID. I'm not so sick. They're not hospitalized, but they have, they have symptoms. They stay home even with a potential one dose. And the weeks ahead will be more gut-wrenching still. Many provinces are now locking down and triaging and transferring patients, activating surge capacity in its healthcare system that is now under threat of COVID-19 like never before. And Jake, look, this is a problem. You have to rewind decades to really get to the heart of this problem, but that doesn't let the Trudeau government off the hook. Uh, They've been in power for more than five years. They heard the dire predictions. This country for decades had a competitive advantage in making vaccines. The research was right here. But look, Canadians will now pay for that complacency. Trudeau promises that domestic manufacturing will ramp up next year. Jake, you and I both know it's just too late at this point in time. This third wave is punishing. I am speaking to doctors, especially in the hotspot of Toronto. You know, Jake, they are letting people into the sick children's hospital, adults, in order to be able to treat them for COVID. Uh, A lot of things to talk about here, including the fact that even though the dire predictions were there, no government acted for decades on the vaccine rollout. Yeah, it's a real failure by the Trudeau government, and our Canadian cousins deserve a lot better. Paula, thank you so much for that. appreciate your report. Finally, today we want to take the time to remember just one of the 562,000 people we in the United States have lost to the pandemic, Enrique Valdovinos. He was the head chef and owner at what the Cape Cod Times called the best Mexican restaurant in Cape Cod. It was His dream to open Mi Pueblo and make customers feel at home, and he succeeded. His daughter, Laura, said he was the jokester of the family, even though he never took a day off. When COVID restrictions hit his town of Hyannis, the restaurant struggled, but Valdovinos chipped in to help the community. He made burritos for the homeless. Valdovinos' dad died of coronavirus just weeks before Enrique lost his fight in late January. He was only 45 years old. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family and friends. May his memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.